This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. We are hearing a lot these days, as we have for some time now, about how tough things are financially, economically, for millennials. And they are. Jobs are temporary. They're fleeting. It is hard to have a full-time job like a lot of generations have had where you stay at one company for most of your career. Costs are up. House prices are crazy and through the roof and inaccessible for a lot of people. But here's the thing. Turns out, anyway, looks like anyway, millennials are not alone in this. New poll is out from the States saying that 37%, more than a third, close to getting close to 40% of Generation Xers, those are born between 1965 and the late 70s by definition. So these are people who are... Now into their 50s, some of them, the first wave of them, they're beginning to consider the possibility of retirement. Many of them are now believing they won't be able to retire. They're not going to be financially in a position where they can retire. Joining me to talk about this, a guy who knows, well, he hasn't been retired, best I can tell, but he knows an awful lot about preparing for retirement. Andy Lister is an executive financial consultant with Investors Group. He's also more familiar probably to many of you as co-host of Planning Your Financial Future here on 900 CHML Saturday mornings. Andy, thanks for doing this today. Hey, good evening, Scott. Thanks for having me. Should we be surprised by this news that a whole bunch of people who seem to be in that age group that we've kind of just assumed are doing okay maybe aren't doing or don't feel like they're doing as well as they thought? No, it's not surprising at all. And it, 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 You know, I did a little bit of research on the U.S. study, and uh, there is a Canadian study that was done by TD, and it is a couple years old, but it's actually even scarier because Gen Xers here in Canada, there's about 67% of them are saying they're not saving enough for retirement and are going to have to work probably, A, a lot longer than they thought and probably well into retirement as well. So it's certainly, um, it's even probably more so of a problem here in Canada. Now, is it, do you believe that that is legitimately the case or is it people like you, and I say this with love and with, you know, respect, but is it people like you, the the financial planners who have told people how much they have to save and they're saying, well, I don't have anywhere close to that. Like, is, is, are the numbers real? Do they really have cause for concern or have they been scared into thinking they don't have enough? Yeah, I think, I mean, it all certainly depends on your lifestyle and what you're expecting in terms of your spending pattern once you retire. Obviously, you know, as I say, it's it's not about how much you need to save. It's about how much you're going to spend. And, mm. and so depending on your lifestyle, that will certainly dictate how much you should be spending. But the numbers are sort of scary. I know there was a CARP uh, research piece done as well that looked at, uh, at those sort of around age 55 right now. And the, those earning between fifty and a hundred thousand dollars in their salary have average savings of about twenty one thousand dollars. And so, is that like know, that in, that's including RSPs and everything else? Exactly. Exactly. Twenty one thousand dollars. Twenty one thousand. And if your income falls between twenty five and fifty thousand, the majority of those have about two hundred and fifty bucks saved for retirement. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the number, I think what uh, what begins to, to scare people is they're thinking about their lifestyle and how much they're spending and, and realizing, wait a minute, how am I going to be able to duplicate this in my retirement? I, I'm sorry, you've completely stunned me with the idea that someone might have 
the idea of two hundred and fifty dollars, not two hundred fifty thousand, two hundred and fifty dollars. Why bother? Why bother even declaring you saved two hundred and fifty dollars? That's the first thing. I mean, it's you've got nothing. If you've got two hundred and fifty bucks, you've got nothing saved for retirement. I, well, I'm I'm stunned by those numbers. Well, this is. I mean, as far as that income bracket, if your if your earnings have been between twenty five and fifty thousand, you're in the lowest tax bracket in Canada and in Ontario for sure. And really, there's a question. You know. You, the effort to save and how much difference that is going to make in terms of retirement versus just simply relying on the government programs that are in mm. place to be able to help people retire. So, so that group is sort of, I would put them aside and say, you know what, your savings, you're, you're probably living paycheck to paycheck right. anyway, so right. that's going to be your future, unfortunately. But I'm more shocked those, by the other one. I'm more shocked yeah, by the, the ones one, making a hundred grand with only 21,000 saved. That just, that's amazing to me. Well, I think that the Gen Xers, and this is sort of that group, they were born in 1965 to 1970. They're 39 to 53 years old. And I just, I'm on the cusp of that. I came in, I was born in 62, so I'm 55, well, I'll be 56 this year. So I kind of feel their pain a little bit, but I was at the end of the baby boomers. And, uh, you know, they're, it, it's... It's been a tough go. I mean, we've seen, as you say, the affordability for housing has been a big demand on people. And the, the three strikes, and it's interesting, the article that you're referring to talks about the three strikes against uh, the majority of Gen Xers. And the first one was 1987, when we had the largest stock market crash in history at the time. The second one was in 2000, when we had the tech technology bubble, which burst, and there was a, a two-year period of of terrible stock market performance. And then in 2008, the financial crisis, which was sort of the the third strike in all of this. And I think in many ways, it sort of, uh, A, scared people away from the whole investment concept, but also made it difficult, I think, for people in terms of economically, whether it was jobs, et cetera, to sort of maintain a flow, as you said, you know, having a consistent job with a pension as well. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Continuing our conversation with Andy Lister from Planning Your Financial Future here on 900 CHML about the fact that Gen Xers, to the surprise of many, because we sort of just don't really pay attention to their issues with this, it seems, uh, claim or feel they're not really being well-prepared or aren't well-prepared for retirement and Andy, what really, more than anything, surprises me about this is it seems that that generation, this generation, and I'm in that generation, you're just on the cusp of it, I've heard all my life, and most people I know have heard all my life, you got to save, you got to save for retirement, you got to put money away, you have RSPs, do something. We've okay. all been told forever, whether it's whether you're saving a ton, do something, save something. It shocks yeah. me that this generation seems to have ignored the advice, at least a lot of them has. This is, I mean, really what we have, is not a retirement crisis, it's a savings crisis. And uh, the ability for people to, you know, modify their spending, to be able to create a, a saving habit is is such a difficult thing. And, and so I can't tell, this is probably the best time of year to begin changing something in your financial future because the New Year's resolutions, we make fun of them, etc. But it actually is a great turning point for someone to make a change in terms of their savings habit and their financial future. So the place to start absolutely is how can I save 
10% we talk about as a target, right? And that makes sense. Do you have a workplace program? Are you maximizing that? That's a great place to start because many times it's going to be matched or some portion of your savings are going to be matched. It's an automatic bonus. But automating is so critical. Can I get something going on a $50 a week, $100 a week, whatever it is? Once you start it, you'll find it just becomes a habit, and that is such a key to the whole process. But how many, uh, sorry, but interrupt this, but how many people feel like they can't do that? Because we've talked about this a lot, too, that they have debted themselves out. They are maxed, and they can't take 100 bucks or 50 bucks out because every dime they have is into the mortgage or into the house or into whatever. You know what, and and I probably jumped ahead one step because probably the first thing to do is you have to understand where it's going. There's no doubt about where's my money going. Tracking your spending is absolutely key. If you can take two months, even a month, and look at your statement, look at your cash flow on your debit card, the money that's going out every month, and understand where is it going? Where are the weak spots? Where am I perhaps spending some areas that are sort of discretionary that I might be able to carve something out of it? But I often find that once you start doing something on an automated basis, that becomes the priority. Other things tend to kind of fall away, but debt is absolutely the next key component. And Debt is the same thing. It has to tackle the high interest rate uh, items first, those credit cards or high interest loans or lines of credit. And any amount is great. Can you do an extra 50 bucks a month, an extra 100 bucks a, a, a cycle on your debt? And that is going to go a long way to helping you build your net worth. The fact that we're again talking about Gen Xers who are approaching that retirement time, and mm-hmm. I got to think that a lot of them are in jobs or have held jobs over the years that have either promised or offered pensions that in some cases have changed under their feet. The landscape has changed. The pension may have changed. The company can't afford it now, whatever else. How much is that, do you think, factoring into this, that I banked on something and now it may not be there? Well, you nailed it. You know, in, in the in the days past, I mean, my parents, when they retired, they always talked about how much was your monthly uh, retirement p- paycheck because they got a set amount from their pensions, et cetera, and every month it came in no matter what they did. Today, if we're lucky enough to have a pension plan, it's typically a defined contribution plan, meaning that you're going to end up at retirement with a pile of money. Some people's pile might be bigger than others, but you're going to have a pile of money. Now you have to figure out how much do I take out of that every single month to supplement or create my retirement paycheck and make sure that I don't run out or I don't live too long and I've spent it, right? And that's probably the other big fear that people have. But definitely the the, the defined benefit pension plan is gone as the dodo bird and the increase in ter- terms of defined contribution plans. Even if you have that, that's a bonus that many of us today are either left with perhaps a group RRSP at work or, or even nothing. And we have to do it all on our own. And here's where the, the real difficulty, the trickle down comes from, because if these people are concerned and what they're saying in this poll is, yes, I'm so concerned about my retirement that I don't plan to retire. I'm going to stay till I'm 70 or 75 or whatever else. If that happens, those are not jobs that free up for the millennials or the next generation to come and take. So we pass on all of our problems down to them and we create a second generation of problems. 
Yeah, I think and millennials are uh, millennials are looking at this much differently. A lot of them are thinking, you know, I'm I'm definitely going to work longer. I'm going to play harder now and probably work longer later. And so they're sort of turning around the whole retirement concept. And uh, and of course, house ownership for millennials is something that's becoming further and further away in terms of a of a goal. But I, you know, I think the other the other big issue too is that a, a lot of times we're too conservative in terms of our savings and the difference between earning you know four percent or six percent or eight percent on your investments over a period of 10 or 15 or 20 years can be staggering and that's i think that's a key mistake that a lot of times people make too particularly if you're saving on a regular basis you've got 10 or 15 years before retirement be aggressive you're you're adding money on a monthly basis you can afford the volatility and the risk associated with a more aggressive portfolio, but that's going to make a big difference in terms of how much you're going to have when the time comes to retire. Andy Lister, co-host of Planning Your Financial Future that you can hear on weekends on 900 CHML. And I'm just guessing, but I'm thinking this topic may actually arise one of these weeks on, yeah, uh, on the show. Right. Andy, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for letting me share this. Thanks. Uh, again, catch it Saturday mornings, 7 till 8 a.m., planning your financial future. If you're one of those Gen Xers who finds yourself in that group that's concerned, you really should tune in. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Chances are, if you are a Canadian, and I know there are folks down in the States who listen all the time, so you're welcome to join in on this conversation as well. But if you're a Canadian, over the last two Summer Olympics, Chances are you watched and cheered for and were intensely proud of the work that our national women's soccer team did. Bronze medals in both of the last two Olympics never had done that before. Not that long ago, Canada's women's team was a mess. Now we're ranked fifth in the world. It's a huge success story. And much of it was done on the back of the head coach, John Herdman, who built this team and helped them win those two medals, but now caught a lot of people off guard this week because John Herdman has decided to leave the national women's team and take over the national men's team, which for a long time has been a bit of a hot mess, and he is going to see if he can bring the same magic to that team. Well, here to talk about it, whether he's actually able to do that is going to be the big question. John McGrain, Hamilton guy, former pro soccer player, former Olympic soccer player, a man who has had his career in all facets of the game of soccer. Sir, thanks for doing this today. Happy New Year to you, Scott. Happy New Year to And I forgot, by the way, member of about 17 halls of fame. i got to throw that one in, so, you know, just for your credentials. Oh, yeah, no, you're making me feel old. <laughs> no, not old, just really accomplished. Um, look, in most places, John, there is no question that uh, whether we this sounds sexist or not, in most countries, if you get moved from the national women's team to the national men's team, that is unquestionably considered a big step up. But considering how good Canada's women's team has been and how successful it is and how much trouble Canada's men's team has had taking that next step. Is this a promotion for John Herdman? Oh, it's definitely a promotion for John Herdman. There's no doubt about that. Do you believe that he has some kind of magic that he will be able to do for the men what he did for the women? That's, that's uh, where it gets a little trickier, I think. Yeah, it probably does. Uh, I think we're in uncharted waters right now. Uh, and the reason why I say that, that this is unprecedented. Uh, I don't think that there has been a situation where 
any women's coach, national coach, has ever taken over the men's national team in the world. So this is the first time that this has ever happened. Uh, I don't know how some of the other you know, professional men out there who are Canadian who you'd be looking at to, to you know, climb the ladder to up to the men's national team, uh, how they would feel about this. Mm. But it is unprecedented and innovative. Is it, is it simply a case of switching from women to men? Is, is coaching coaching? Is everything the same except for the gender of the players or are there adjustments? Well, don't forget. I mean, when you're when you're dealing with the with women, I've you know I've had the opportunity to coach uh, my daughters and been involved in women's soccer uh, you know many many years ago. Uh, women are a heck of a lot easier to coach than men. Uh, Why? Well, I think they're they're more receptive uh, to uh, more receptive to uh, to you know to knowledge, and they're they're much easier to coach. They're uh, much more enthusiastic, uh, they're, they're willingness to learn and embrace new ideas. Men are a little bit more difficult. You're dealing with, you know, more egotistic individuals. You know, a little bit more narcissism involved. Dealing with a lot of major, major egos. You don't find that kind of egocentric individuals in women's soccer, uh, but you do find it in men. So, when you're used to coaching at a women's level, you're not dealing with that issue in the dressing room. And this is something that uh, that John has never had to deal with. Uh, so it will be interesting to sit back and watch uh, how he's able to do that. And one thing I must say, that he's created an enthusiasm <clears throat> within the dressing room and the women's team. And to see if he can translate over to men, only time will tell him that. Well, and there's one other thing that has been brought up by a couple of people about the difference between the women and men. And I don't know if this is true, but it sure seems like it. And that is the women's team, for whatever reason, maybe they spend a lot more time together. It's more of um, whatever. It seems like it's more of a family group. The, the women on that team are very close. You see that all the time. The men, you bring them in for training camps or for a tournament, and then they go back and go to their other club teams does that have an impact if you've got a group that really is very, very tight to begin with? It's easy to be tight when you're winning. That's true, too. Uh, when, when you're 90, whatever it's in the world, uh, and you lose more than you win, you will get discon- discontent within the dressing room. Players are pointing fingers. Uh, some of the players are coming from decent teams. Uh, you know, Atiba Hutchinson coming from playing in the Champions League in Turkey. And he comes in, and he's going to have to deal with the women's coach. I mean, that is going to be a difficult scenario. Uh, but as far as harmony is concerned, you know, winning cures uh, all illnesses. And uh, it will be interesting to see how that John is able to bring a camaraderie to the men's program. But keeping in mind uh, the success of the women's program is a heck of a lot easier when you've got one of the best strikers in the world. That's true. That is the true. The program does not have that. we got to take a break in a second, but before we do, let me ask you this, and then we're going to keep going. Um, why have so many coaches failed with this men's team, though? Like, it, John Herdman is walking into a situation that has not exactly been paved with greatness before him. There have been some good coaches, but they've not been able to do it. Why? I think the main reason is that the competitive nature, and this is the same in hockey, uh, women's hockey, uh, the competitive nature of men's World Cup soccer right now is 
is so incredibly tight at the top 50, 60, 70 teams in the world uh, that you could have a 70th-ranked team beat the number 20. In, in women's soccer, there's maybe only 10. So to get to the top is an easier climb than getting to the top in the men's program. So I, I just say it has to do with the, the number of quality teams that are out there that makes it much more difficult vis-a-vis why the Americans never made it to the World Cup this year. It's not that easy. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Scott Radley Show, continuing our conversation with John McGrain about the change at the top of the men's national soccer team. This is this is something we've we've had success in the women's program, the men not so much. John Herdman now switching over to take over and to try and bring some of that magic John, is the, there's, the World Cup is coming up this summer. Canada's not participating. Because that is the big event this summer, there's no other that I know of major, major international events that Canada will be playing in in the really near future. So is there any significance to the timing of Herdman's announcement right now? Well, unless you're, unless you're a fly on the wall at the CSA meetings, uh, one can only speculate that... Uh, uh, knowing that the CSA has always struggled with with finances and and money, uh, that uh, I think Zambrano was on a fairly decent contract, probably in excess of a million a year. Uh, that uh, if they were to make this move because of financial reasons, that would make complete sense to me. The only other thing I wondered is if bringing him in now gives him a year or two to really sort of get things sorted out and settle down before the significant events start again. So maybe he can try and stabilize things. That's entirely possible. Uh, I know that uh, usually when you have this break right now that uh, that you won't see a lot of the players. But I think his, his job will be, uh, as he has done in his career, is to develop personal relationships with all the players. And he's been great at that with the women. He's been fantastic at that with the women. Oh, yeah. I mean, They love him. Take, yeah, let's take nothing away from the fact that there are certain coaches in the world right now and one who has never played at any level at all, which is, uh, which is Mourinho at Manchester United. Uh, one of his big strengths is, is that he'll take a bullet for his players. And the players love playing for, uh, for Mourinho. But uh, I think Herdman is of that, uh, of that ilk that he'll have the negative side of not really coaching men's soccer. But uh, on the positive side, I think he'll overcome that with the ability to be able to relate to players. And he's young enough to be able to relate to players uh, on on a different level where what you're trying to do is create a harmony within the dressing room. But at the end of the day, at international soccer, at the professional level, it's all about wins and losses. And, uh, and, And that's what will determine whether it's been a success or not. Well, absolutely. And there's also something else that um, he, you talked about a moment ago that he has had with the women's team. He has had one of the best strikers in the world. He's had a couple of the best strikers in the world. He's had Christine Sinclair. He's had Melissa Tancredi. Um, Interestingly, both of them sort of moving along, which makes me wonder if he also is a very smart man who says, you know what, now would be the time to move along because I may not be able to keep the women's team at this level. I mean, I'm not saying he's a complete, I'm not saying he's a fraud or something. I'm just saying when your best players are now reaching retirement age, that's not a bad time to consider something else. However, 
Where does he find those kind of players for the men's team? Because as you say, you need those guys to be able to, to win. Well, that's where the Canadian Premier League comes in, which just made their announcement today that they're now officially in business uh, uh, for an opening of 2019. I mean, let's face it, this is going to be a long haul. Uh, you're looking at trying to develop players who are 14 and 15 years old right now. So for him, in order to be successful, he's going to have to you know, walk a tightrope of success and failure over the next four or five years because his success is not going to come now. It's going to come four or five years from now. And whether the CSA is willing to wait that long and to get success, that will be something that will probably be dealt with. But at the same time, uh, and I don't know this for a fact, but I would assume that he's on a hell of a lot less money than what uh, Zambrano mm. or uh, Benito Floro was on. So I think they'll probably show a little bit more patience unless they get absolutely get their bums kicked mm. over the next two years. That I think they'll be patient with him over the next four or five years. But there is no instant uh, Christine Sinclair for the men's program right now. No, and you mentioned the Canadian Premier League. I want to spend a minute or two just uh, because it was announced today that there is a new league starting. It'll be a largely Canadian professional league right now. It's Winnipeg and Toronto, but other franchises are expected to be announced. Can this, I know you're a supporter of this in a big way, can this be a breeding ground for the kind of players that he's going to need to actually make the Canadian national men's team competitive? Oh, this is absolutely essential for for getting to that point. There's no doubt about that. Uh, we will not survive without a uh, some kind of platform or conveyor belt that will produce players. Because right now they're not going to they're not going to be produced in MLS because it's mostly 95 percent Americans. Uh, so we need to have our own league, and I think this is the next step forward. And I, I think it's uh, essential that not only do we uh, do we welcome this league, but that we support it? Because without it, we will be not just third world nations, we'll be fourth world nations huh. in the game of soccer. Well, and we've been there for a while. And John, we only have a few seconds left here. So very quick question. Do you anticipate with these changes, is there hope that when 2022 rolls around and we all tune in in the summertime to watch the World Cup, is there hope that Canada will be playing in that World Cup? Really? No. I would have said that would be an easier answer as Zambrano was the coach because you knew what he had and you knew what he's capable of and you knew the players that he was bringing through the system. Now that you've got a brand new coach who's not familiar with the men's program, that's a big question mark. I don't have an answer to that. But I will say that by 2026 that there will be enough players coming through the CPL that uh, you could put Coco the Clown there as coach, and these players will come out there and do the business. Well, if it can be Coco the Clown, I may apply because it'll pay better than my current job. So maybe I'll I'll apply to be head coach then, and we'll see if we can get to the World Cup. Well, maybe you can maybe you can borrow my red note then. <laughs> John McGrain, thank you always, sir, for doing this. Really appreciate it. Take care of yourself, Scott. That is uh, the great legendary John McGrain, one of the best soccer players ever from around here, if not the best. He's certainly in more halls of fame than just about anybody I know. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. I'm sure by now you've heard you were listening to CHML or reading the spec.com or watching CHCH or whatever. You know that our Prime Minister was in Hamilton today, speaking at McMaster University. He had a town hall meeting at Burr's Gym, and about close to 2,000 people were there. We talked about this last night. And last night, if you were listening, if you were here, 
I was imploring, urging, hoping that some of the students that would ask real questions. Because after all, a university campus for a liberal prime minister is not generally exactly going to be a den of vipers. You're, ta- you're preaching to the choir by and large, by and large. So I was just hoping that a number of people, a few people, a handful of people would rise up and ask hard questions. And not just because he's Justin Trudeau. I would want this of any prime minister coming into our universities, any prime minister of any political stripe. This is how a democracy works. You don't cheerlead. You hold our leaders' feet to the fire and ask them hard questions about what, they're, what they were doing and what they've been doing. So it's nothing about a political party. It's about a political position. So how do we do? Well, there were the usual number of softball questions that, you know, you're never going to get away from those. But I will give credit to two people in particular. Two people in particular, I thought, and I have no idea who who they are. I don't have their names. One of them, I thought it was a terrific question, asked today, actually three people I'm going to point to. One of them today said when they came into the gym, they weren't padded down. They weren't checked. There was no metal detectors or anything like that. And they said, look, you're bringing back ISIS fighters, trying to rehabilitate them into Canada. How do you possibly expect us to trust that you're going to do that when you can't, as they said, run a decent security operation to prevent bad guys potentially or bad women from getting into the gym? Well, that was, you know, that answer was met with nothing. Not really. Then there was someone who raised, thankfully, the question about the $10.5 million payout to Omer Cotter, pointing out that this was something that most Canadians... Now, she was pretty... I'll use the word belligerent. Some people would say that. Some people would say pretty persistent. Either way, the questioner, to his credit, the Prime Minister took her question, answered her question. It was a very slick, very good answer by political standards, because what's he supposed to say? What's he supposed to say? They gave $10.5 million to to Omar Khadr. It's an unpopular thing. But part of his answer I found very interesting. It takes us to our third question, because part of the answer was, you will not be able to take away Canadians' rights and get away with it. We will defend Canadians' rights. That's what we do. That's what we stand for. And that got a standing ovation. That was a that was a very good, very intelligent. I don't necessarily agree. A lot of people aren't going to agree with what he said because we don't agree with the payout. But it was a good political answer. But it led to a third question that that question about rights tied into. Because the third question was about the fact that, and I don't know if you've caught this story yet. It hasn't been covered all that much. But in Canada now, this summer, if you are a company, if you're an organization that wants to apply for federal grant money to be able to hire people for summer jobs, you have to fill out some stuff. And one of them is you have to acknowledge or check off the fact that you are not pro-life. You are not anti-abortion. You stand for the right of women to have abortions across this country. It's not a question of, we have different opinions. In order to qualify or even apply for the grant, you must say, that is my position. Well, 
here's a problem I have. We're not going to get into an entire debate right now about whether or not you are in favor or against abortion. That's not, we don't have the time right now, and that's not what this is about. That's not the issue. The issue is, in Canada, you have the right, you have, one of the Canadian virtues is your freedom of your conscience. And so, we're not talking about someone standing outside an abortion clinic with a rifle, but you are entitled in this country to disagree with abortion. You are entitled to not support abortion. That is your legal right. That is, having a freedom of conscience is a legal right. However... With this, and with the Prime Minister previously saying everyone who's going to be in the Liberal caucus must also support the right to abortion, you're not allowed to have a dissenting view on this one in this country, at least not under a Liberal government, it seems. If this had been Stephen Harper bringing in some position that he held and demanded all of his party support it, and you couldn't get grant money for some position that he held or his party held, we would be talking, we'd be hearing about how he was authoritarian and dictatorial and heavy-handed and all these kind of things. This is the Prime Minister saying, we will pay $10.5 million to protect a Canadian's rights, and then turning around immediately and saying, except for the rights that we disagree with, in which case you are not going to be able to get money out of us unless you subscribe to the rights and the beliefs that we have. That's not rights anymore. That is a contradictory position. And that answer today, and we may take this one up later because I find this thing so interesting and so distressing that we have a government now that on this position anyway is saying you must agree with us. It's not that you're going to take action. It's not that you're going to take do criminal acts. You must agree with us or you are not entitled. And that is a scary position to have in any government, in any country, especially Canada. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. We all know, for many of us who have ever been in a grocery store, and that I assume is everybody, we all know that there are things that people in grocery stores that marketers, that sellers in grocery stores, there are things they do to get us to buy certain foods. Where in the store the item is placed, whether it's at eye level or way down low, things like that. You know, attractive packaging, all that stuff works to help us buy the products. But that just gets the food into your cart and gets it home with you. Question is, what gets it into your mouth? What causes you then to eat that food? This is relevant, of course, because we are at the beginning of a new year. There are lots of people who have done, who have decided to have New Year's resolutions, who are trying to cut back on food or eat different foods or eat healthier foods. And yet, you get home with all the best intentions and you sit down in front of the TV set and before you know it, you've pounded back a sleeve of Oreos and you're feeling bad about yourself. Why do we do it? What is it in our psychology that causes us to do this? Dr. Rachel Hertz is a neuroscientist who's an author. She's a consultant. She's a teacher at Brown University and Boston College in the, I think, unusual field of the psychology of smell. Stay with me because this is really important. As it turns out, by the way, she's also a Canadian who got her degree, her uh, her, uh, PhD at the University of Toronto. So we know she's extra genius because she was Canadian. She's also the author of a fascinating book called Why You Eat What You Eat, The Science Behind Our Relationship with Food. She joins me now. Dr. Hertz, thanks for doing this tonight. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for having me. Uh, Thrilled to have you here. Now, I'm not going to say that we are being tricked by food companies into eating stuff we shouldn't or eating 
more than we should. But from what I read, from what you've written and what you've studied, there is more to us making decisions about what we eat and why we eat it than simply exhibiting willpower. There's a lot of stuff going on that we don't recognize with our decisions. Absolutely. And everything from the close-up sensory features of the food, what, how it smells, of course, and how it tastes, but also how it looks, the sound it makes when we eat it, and all the psychological factors from everything in the room around us to our mood and where we happen to be at this certain time in our life. All those things go into the decisions we make, how food tastes to us, how fast we eat it, and even the consequences that it has on us after we've eaten it. So this is really a huge topic, and uh, there's a smorgasbord of information in my book to digest. <laughs> yeah, well, very good. Yeah, no, absolutely there is. And and before we get into some of these things, and I'm only going to go through a few of them because we don't have time to do more than that, although I'd love to. I think, I think a lot of people think of decisions on food and what works for us as basically starting and ending with our tongue and obviously with our nose because we know smell is involved, but we think of it as pretty much concentrated internally in that one part of our body. There's a lot of external factors way beyond that, as I understand it, that goes into our decisions. Absolutely. And you were talking about grocery stores and labeling and so forth. And one of the really fascinating things is that when we see food that says it's healthy or that says organic, we actually think that it has fewer calories than the same food produced conventionally. And in fact... Isn't that what we're supposed to think? Isn't that what they want us to think? Um, I don't really want to speak to the intentions behind <laughs> food marketers, but the, but the problem for us is that we eat more of it when we think the ingredients are healthier, when we think it's organic or if it has any kind of fitness connotation. It's like we feel as if we've actively already done something for our health by eating it. And then another thing is we feel we don't even have to exercise after it, believe it or not. There's been studies that have found that people will say that it's okay to skip a workout after eating organic cookies. Oh, yeah. Or, or, I mean, the one that always strikes me is cereal. And, and, you know, there are different cereals that are supposed to be really healthy for you. And then you look at the label, if you actually take the time, and there's a ton of sugar in these cereals. You go, wait, how healthy could this actually be? Right. Well, the same thing goes for conventional and organic Oreos. There's just as much sugar pretty much in, in organic Oreos. So it doesn't matter if it comes from raw cane or if it was, it's refined white. It's sugar is sugar. But the other point is so that everything in moderation is fine. And that's one of the points of my book is that you can, moderation and variation are kind of a mantra of mine. So, you know, it's fine to have cookies however you come across them and everything else, but just not too much of it, and you also want to mix up your diet so you're not just eating cookies every day. Sorry, I blacked out after you said there were organic Oreos. I, everything that you said after that, I was sort of lost in a haze of imagining. I had no idea there were such things. Yep, believe it or not, <laughs> pretty much everything can be done organic. But, so, but your point, your first point is we see something that says healthy or organic or high fiber or whatever else that sounds like it's going to be really healthy for us. So not only will we, you say, eat more, but we probably have fooled ourselves into believing that we're actually doing something helpful, maybe even more so. If it's good for me in a small portion, it must be really good for me in a bigger portion. Well, that's an interesting interpretation, actually, that I hadn't thought of that. The more you eat of it, the more you're being healthy to yourself. That's interesting, but it's also the case that I think that we just definitely feel that we can forgo other actually healthy activities if we've done something healthy, like eating a food that we think is healthy. So exercising can go out the window. And exercise is extremely important, as I'm sure your listeners know, to just about everything. So it's definitely not the case that you can skip a workout after organic cookies. 
Did I understand, though, and maybe I misunderstood this part, but did I understand part of what you say in your book is that not only do we fool ourselves into thinking we don't have to do that, but we actually can change uh, our our physiology, our, our digestion, whatever else it is, by believing that the food we have is healthy? Did I read that properly? Actually, it's if we believe the food we're eating is really indulgent and high calorie. Oh, okay. So what's really amazing, this was a study that was done by Alia Crum. She was at Yale at the time. And she found, this is basically looking at how mind over matter is so incredibly powerful that it can actually trick our metabolisms. And in her study, she had people who were given a milkshake at two different conditions. And in fact, it was the identical milkshake both times. And it had, in fact, a moderate number of calories in it. But in one, one time, they were given the milkshake, and they were told it was a sensible, low-calorie shake with zero fat and zero <laughs> added sugar and all this stuff. And, you know, that's the... This the typical milkshake, yep. Yeah. Right, exactly. <laughs> Not. But then they were given a milkshake, the same exact one, but told it was really decadent and indulgent and super high-calorie and fat and full of all kinds of amazing, delicious sorts of things. And when people ate the first milkshake, the one that was called Sensible, the hormone called ghrelin, which is what we sometimes call the hunger hormone, it's high when we're hungry, and after we eat, it drops down. And when it drops down, it also kicks up our metabolism so that we can burn off the calories of that big meal we just consumed. But when that, that milkshake was called low-calorie and sensible, people's ghrelin levels barely budged. But when that exact same milkshake was called high-calorie indulgent, people's ghrelin levels really dropped and their metabolism revved up so they burned more calories. So the take-home message is that your body will burn more calories if what you're eating you think is really high-calorie and really indulgent and decadent. So posting something, having packaging that says healthy could actually work opposite of the effect. Yeah, there's this bizarre counterintuitive effect that when something is labeled healthy, we eat more of it and our bodies don't respond to the same extent as when we think something is really decadent. So the, the, the good thing, the thing to try to do would be to see if you could trick yourself into believing that the food that you're eating is really scrumptiously decadent and high calorie, and then you'll be burning more while you're consuming it. Another side to that is actually when we think something is super amazing in that respect, we take smaller bites, we eat more slowly, and we're more engaged with eating. And all of those things in and of themselves both make us eat more, but they also get give us more satisfaction from food because when we're engaged more, we actually savor the flavor and we feel satiated with less. So your message to everybody is abandon all the high-fiber cereal and eat nothing but cake all day long, <laughs> and that will make you far healthier and lose weight. Well, this is the trick, actually, <laughs> is think that your cereal is cake. Let them have cake. That's so, right. You know, pretend that your cereal is cake, and that will help. But uh, in all seriousness, there's... There is a sort of a downside to all the labeling these days about healthiness that we should really be keeping sure. in mind. Sure, no, for sure. And the, and the point that I'm really trying to get across to people, because there's so many factors that go into this, this is just only one of them, that if we have the knowledge about all the influences that are affecting us, we can basically take back food and have control over what we eat and our relationship with it, rather than feeling like food is controlling us. Let's move on. That's fa I mean, that is really, really fascinating because you're right. It is so counterintuitive to think that, but that's, that's really interesting. Everyone has heard, everyone talks about comfort food. I don't know, for some reason, especially in winter, we talk about wanting to have comfort foods. Uh, but you are saying this is not a cliche, that we really do react differently to foods that are familiar to us. 
Yes. So comfort food is usually food that our parents gave us when we were little, either, you know, for a good reason, you know, a treat, or they were going out for the evening and we got craft dinner or something along those lines. And even if as adults we can sort of objectively say, no, craft dinner is kind of gross, it can still make us feel really good and we can still think that it tastes really good because it's like getting a warm hug from your parents. And we turn to those kinds of food as adults when we're feeling stressed and distressed. And that actually is a good thing. The feeling good from getting that interaction with food is good because it makes us feel better. And believe it or not, this effect of comfort food is especially strong for people who have really close, well-formed relationships with other people. So people who are like not as emotionally stable in relationships don't get the same positivity from comfort food, but people who do actually do get a lot of benefit from comfort food, but it can also mean they sometimes eat more of the comfort food again. But you also suggest, I think, again, if I'm interpreting this right, that familiar foods, whether it's comfort food or just things that we are really familiar with, we feel fuller, we feel like we've actually eaten something if it's food that we know and you know, I mean, if I if I have if I'm used to eating chicken, let's say, and I have chicken, that's something that will make me fill up rather than switching to something of which I'm unfamiliar that I don't necessarily have that same feeling of fullness or satisfaction. Yes, that's absolutely the case. So if, for instance, at every meal we always eat bread, then we feel like that bread is much more filling to us and kind of signifies that we've had a complete meal than if, for instance, we switched it up and for a potato or rice, even if there were more calories or whatever in this new food. So the foods that we're familiar with are actually foods that we think are most filling. And so one of the problems we have sometimes when we encounter unfamiliar foods is that we can miscalculate sort of how much we should eat of them because we're not familiar with them. But the the good thing is that you could possibly bring in something really healthy to have with all your meals and then feel like, okay, now that I've had broccoli, I feel full and I don't need to eat much more. But that would explain why, maybe, why so many people who decide, you know what, I'm going to try being a vegetarian. For example, have, a, have trouble making that adjustment because if you're used to eating meat and that is what actually is that thing that makes you feel full and you now eliminate that from your diet completely and take on a bunch of things that otherwise are not as familiar, you would constantly be feeling hungry. Well, that's a really good point, and I think you're absolutely right. But I think that over the long term, and this is obviously what happens when people switch to vegetarianism, then they find new foods to become familiar with. In time. But certainly at the beginning, it would be a struggle if you would feel like, you know, I just don't feel full or properly fed, as it were, because I didn't have chicken or fish or some other protein from a meat that I'm used to. Let's keep going because there's a few more things I want to get to that are really fascinating here that I never would have expected. We know that... People like to have food that looks nice. We go, you go to a nice restaurant and they present it on a plate so it is visually appealing, but it never dawned on me really that the color of food would have an impact on how we taste it or how we find satisfaction in it. Yeah, so one of the really interesting things is the color red. So red, we assume, makes food sweeter, or we don't assume. It actually seems that it makes food sweeter. And a great example for this, and that's because of the fact that, especially with fruit, in nature, when things are riper, they tend to be redder. And the great way to sort of test yourself with this is to get some red grapes and some green grapes and close your eyes, and this is assuming that they're both pretty much equal sweetness, and then taste them, and you should not be able to tell which is the red and which is the green and think that one is sweeter than the other. But with your eyes open, I bet you'll think the red ones are sweeter than the green ones. 
because we also think from nature that green means more sour because it tends to be that unripe fruit is more sour. And if you put something on a red plate, and the other thing that's really cool is that round is also a signifier of, of sweetness because round things in nature and even things that we make for each other tend to be sweet, like cupcakes and cakes and ice cream scoops mm. and so forth, and fruit in general, which is round and sweet. So if you were to eat something, especially something sweet, on a round red plate, you would potentially think that was sweeter than something of the same exact food served on, a, let's say, a blue square plate. So it would be interesting to try to work with what you're eating to see if you can maximize your perception of sweetness, and then maybe that would also give you more satisfaction because you don't need to eat as much because it's, you know, tastes so sweet. Another really almost uh, surprising thing about red is that in sort of the opposite sense, it can work as a stop cue because red is also a signal for danger. In nature, blood is red, poisonous things are sometimes red. In our built environment, stop signs and stop lights are red. And when we see a danger sign, it's typically red. So red when we're eating can also be like this, wait a second, I better maybe take stock here and maybe not eat. And there was this fascinating study done where people were served pretzels on either red, white, or blue plates, and they were just told, you know, they were doing something else at the time. You can just eat as much as you want from these pretzels or just sitting there. And it was found that when the pretzels were on the red plate, people ate far fewer than if they were on the white or the blue plate, and they liked the colors of the plates equally much, and it didn't have anything to do with that. So there's really red is a really interesting color when it comes to food. Last thing, because we only have a couple of minutes, and this one to me, this was the one that blew me away more than anything, because in a million years, it never dawned on me that somehow sound can affect taste. I mean, I know if you're listening to nice music, you might feel good, and therefore everything is happier, and so maybe food tastes better. I don't know, but it never dawned on me that a loud noise or different sounds could change the way we taste things, and not just psychologically, although that's part of it, but physiologically. Yes, so this is really interesting. So there are three cranial nerves that innervate taste, and one of them is also the nerve that innervates our sense of hearing. And so what this means is that when we're in really, really loud noise, that nerve is being activated, and in fact, it interacts with our taste system and dampens down our ability to taste saltiness and sweetness. Both of those are inherently pleasurable sensations. It doesn't do anything to bitterness, though. And the classic example is being on an airplane and wondering why the food always tastes so crappy, and it's because... The loud and the airplane ambient noise, I mean, you, you often don't realize it, but the ambient noise is like standing beside a lawnmower. It's about 80 to 90 decibels, so it's really loud, and it's dampening now sweetness and saltiness and not doing anything to bitter. But the amazing thing that it is doing in a positive way is it's upping the ability to perceive umami. And umami is a, a sort of a taste-flavor sensation that is high in Mediterranean foods, especially tomatoes. And that's why people tend to order Bloody Marys on airplanes, because they taste so much better. So if you're going to be serving a meal that you're not really sure about whether it's going to be good tasting, <laughs> crank up the music at your dinner party and make sure people are deafened. And then who knows, maybe they'll, maybe it won't taste quite as strong. I don't know that. It's it just, it's amazing to me that we can, I know smell and taste have always gone together. It's just never dawned on me that, that sound would do the same thing. Right. It is really fascinating how the brain weaves together all of our senses and our perception of food. It is, uh, it is a book that people are going to want to read because there's this and a lot more in there, and all of this stuff is fascinating. The book is called what, Why You Eat What You Eat, The Science Behind Our Relationship with Food. The author is Dr. Rachel Hertz. Uh, really appreciate the time today. Thanks so much for doing this. 
Thank you, Scott. Thanks for having me. Again, go and go and find that book. If you need a really cool book with really interesting stuff that you would have never considered, maybe you did, I don't know, I've never considered this stuff. Once again, let me give you the title, Why You Eat What You Eat, The Science Behind Our Relationship with Food, and it's Dr. Rachel, and the last name is Hertz, H-E-R-Z. And you can find that, I'm sure it's online, I'm sure you can get it in Kobo or Amazon or wherever, or at a bookstore, but um, interesting, interesting stuff. Who knew that sound could affect taste? Never thought of that. The Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.